You're listening to The Riverwalk, the preaching ministry of Beth River Baptist Church in Winsboro, Louisiana. Today we're going to continue looking at the book of Joshua and how to be a living stone. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoy. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning and I would suggest that you turn two places. First to Joshua chapter 4 and secondly to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, I'm a little bit nervous this morning, and I want to thank Lester for praying for me. Today, I've decided to just go totally off the cuff, no notes whatsoever. Uh, the good news is that means this could be really short. Bad news is this means it could be really long. I don't know. I've preached it a hundred times to myself, and it's came out different each time. I actually preached on Joshua chapter 4 last year, if you remember, about the memorial stones, and everybody here got a rock with a date on it. And you could preach this passage of Scripture several different ways, but I just kept coming back to to an idea that I have relating it to the New Testament in 1 Peter chapter 3. So that's my sermon notes is in 1 Peter chapter 3. But we're going to keep going through Joshua. And let me just review about Joshua. If you don't remember, Joshua was chosen to be Moses' successor. Moses died, and Joshua has the job of taking these people the Israelites, into the promised land. One of the first things he does is he appoints spies to go across the river to Jericho, and they find the harlot Rahab. And you could tell the people in Jericho are very afraid, and they know about this God, and they know that they will be defeated if they decide to go against this God. Spies come back. They tell Joshua. The people get excited. The people go on the move. Last week we read in chapter 3, when they crossed the Jordan, We read about what a miracle that was, and we even read a little bit in chapter 4 last week, how big the Jordan River was and how God dried it up for them, how they walked across on dry land. Joshua, this was probably a pretty big, well, it was obviously a pretty big event for Joshua, but it probably was even more special for Joshua because this was the first time that he as a leader saw a miracle like this. And Joshua did not, did not want the people to forget about what had occurred this day. He didn't want them to forget about what had occurred in in years past with the Red Sea. So Joshua has the idea and he commands the people to go and get some stones and to set the stones up to serve as a memorial. And that's why if you have a newer translations, the subheadings say the memorial stones. So I want to read through this and point out a few things Then we'll go to 1 Peter chapter 3. So in Joshua chapter 1 verse 1 it says, And it came to pass, when all the people had completely crossed over the Jordan, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from every tribe, and command them, saying, Take for yourselves twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet stood firm. You shall carry them over with you and leave them in the lodging place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the children of Israel, one man from every tribe, and Joshua said to them, Cross over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and each one of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of tribes of the children of Israel. That this may be a sign among you when your children ask in time to come, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall answer them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord when it crossed over the Jordan 
The waters of the Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial to the children of Israel forever. They crossed over the Jordan. They do what Joshua says, and then you read down in verse 19, you see the result. It says, Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they camped in Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up in Gilgal. Then he spoke to the children of Israel, saying, When your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What are these stones? Then you shall let your children know Israel crossed over this Jordan on dry land, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. That all the peoples of the earth may know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. I read this, and one of the first things that comes to mind is that I believe God wants us to remember. If you think about all the things in the Old Testament, there's a feast for like every little thing. And if you think about the church today, the church ordinances, whether it's baptism, remembering and seeing what God has done for us, or whether it's the Lord's Supper, remembering uh, what Jesus did at the Lord's Supper. And here you see Joshua doing the same thing, encouraging the people to remember. One thing I want you to see of just what, how big these stones must have been. It says in, in Joshua 4, 5, that he told the men, one, take up a stone on his shoulder. Now, I'm a pretty big guy. I think I might could carry two pretty large stones, but for one stone to be on my shoulder, it had to have been pretty big. And what Joshua was doing, he was setting up, not an altar, but a monument. He was setting up something so out of place so out of place that when people came by, when their children, when their grandchildren came by, they would see it and they would know that those 12 stones did not get stacked like that by accident. We're an inquisitive people. When we see something that is out of place, we scratch our heads and we wonder what has happened. And Joshua knew this. Joshua says, hey, we're going to set up a monument, and from now on, when anybody walks by here, especially your children, when they see these 12 huge stones set up, they are going to ask a question. They're going to know that it did not come from here, and they're going to know that these rocks did not get stacked this way by accident. And when they ask, because they will ask, when they ask, you're going to be able to tell them that the Lord dried up the Jordan. This was an event it's going to point out to and that the Lord our God is God, and He is in control of everything. This was a way of reminding the people of the great event that happened when God dried up the Jordan River. So, that brings me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Because you know what? We're called to give an answer as well. Peter said, very, very similar to the early Christians that we should be prepared to give an answer as well. And I put this in your bulletin. And so many times we quote this scripture. This is the apologetic scripture. It says in newer translations to give a defense. The King James Version says to give an answer. But I want you to notice the whole verse. In verse, 1 Peter 3 verse 15 it says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense 
Now, who are we to give a defense to? Who are we to give an answer to? We're not supposed to just go up and start a fight. We're not supposed to just put an angry post on Facebook. We're not supposed to, you know, to just get in an argument for argument's sake. But it says that we're to be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks. Who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. And also, don't miss this last part. With meekness and fear, we're supposed to give a loving answer to some of those that, that ask a reason for our faith. But church, I, I want to start off and I want to just ask you, when was the last time that somebody asked you the reason for your faith? When was the last time somebody did that? I can tell you, if you're like me, it's probably been a while, if ever, but Peter was writing this, and Peter was telling these, these early Christians that in a world so evil like they lived in, in a world so evil like we live in, if we live holy, if we live like God has called us to live, then we will look just like those 12 stones that were totally out of place. And people that see a different people cannot possibly help but ask the question, what is wrong with you? What has happened to you? You are different. I can tell that, that, that something is different about you. You live differently than, than the whole rest of the world. And church, I, I want to tell you, if you're not living differently than the world, you're living wrong. So let's look at some ways we're to be different than the world. Let's start in verse 8. As he gets ready to, to close out his letter, he says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous. Let's just take that first verse right there. And I ask you in America in 2021, I ask you in Louisiana in 2021, I ask you right here in Franklin, Paris, in Liddyville in 2021, how many of you see this kind of unity today? How many of you see this kind of compassion in your workplace, in your schools, in your colleges? How many of you see people that are tenderhearted to one another? How many of you see people that are even courteous to one another? Church, I want to tell you, if we could be a people that are of one mind, that is centered around Jesus Christ and what he did for us, people will notice and people will ask the question, how are you able to be unified? If we could just have compassion for one another, if we could care for one another, if we could love as brothers, if we could be tenderhearted and courteous to one another, just that alone will point to an event. And people will ask, how are you able to do that? Because I know that these people hate you. I know the world we live in is so hateful, but I see a difference in you. But he even goes on further than that. In verse 9, he says, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Church, you want to get people really asking some questions? Well, then when somebody speaks evil of you, when somebody talks bad about your family, when somebody talks bad about your church or your God... Don't return evil for that, but return a blessing for that. Pray for them. Love them. Respond in meekness and in fear. And it will blow their mind because just like them stones didn't belong outside the Jordan, 
they will know really quick that you're not acting like an American. You're not acting like a Republican. You're not acting like a Democrat. You're acting like a total alien and stranger in a foreign land. And people will wonder. And then Peter goes on and he quotes a psalm from the Old Testament. This is what we should want to be like. He says, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from doing evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Oh, church, what would it look like if we as Christians would just make the simple commitment not to use our tongue for evil, not to take the Lord's name in vain, not to yell at our wives or yell at our husbands, not to curse, not to talk down to our children, not to talk evil about a, a, a different race, a different political party, or even a different religion. But just to speak about them in love and say, hey, you know what? They're wrong. And you know what? I know my Bible tells me different. But you know what? At the end of the day, I know they're loved and I know Christ died for them. So I'm going to pray for them and I'm not going to return evil from evil. That blows the world's mind. What if we just wouldn't lie? Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Well, Brother Kevin, I cannot believe that you would even think peace is even a possibility in this world we're living in today. Truth is, I don't know if it is, but I know that I'm going to seek it with all that is within me because I belong in a peaceful place. It says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Oh, I don't want the Lord's face against me. I want to do what the Lord tells me to do when he tells me to do it. I want people to look at me and I want them to ask the question, how are you so hopeful in a world that is so dark? How are you able to smile amongst all the evil in the world? How? It doesn't make sense for me. So look, this begs the question, church. I really think that if you're here today and you're a born again believer, I really think most of you probably want the same thing, too. Amen. I believe you probably do want the same thing. I believe you want to see a lost world find Jesus. I believe you want an opportunity to share your faith. You may be scared to do it, but I think deep down you want to do it. And if not, then I question your faith. I believe you want your children to know the Jesus you know. You want your spouse and you want that. We desperately want to see our nation healed. So it begs the question, why don't we do it? Why aren't we living different? Why aren't we trying to live holy? And Peter addresses this. And let me just take a minute to address this. And let me not sugarcoat it even a little bit. Because if you make the decision to live holy. If you make the decision to live set apart. If you make the decision to live the life that Christ has called you to live. If you make the decision to live like Peter, like Paul, like Joshua, like Rahab. If you make the decision to take up your cross and follow Jesus, then you better be willing to suffer for it. I'm not going to lie to you, teenagers and young people. If you are in school and you make the decision not to curse, if you make the decision to honor your father and your mother, if you make the decision to to be here for Sunday school and Wednesday nights, if you make those kind of decisions, even from a young teenager, then you better get ready for it because you're going to be bullied because of it. 
And, and, and high schoolers and those of you in college, let me just tell you, if you go to college and you make the decision that on Saturday nights I'm not going to go to this place and on Sunday mornings I'm going to go to a church, well then people are going to not like that a whole lot. Your friends are going to be upset that you would rather spend time in God's house than time in the bar house. If you make a decision to remain sexually pure till marriage... Listen, I hate to tell you, but that's probably going to bother both the male and the female in the relationship because that's the world we live in. If you make the decision at your workplace that, hey, you know what? I'm going to be there on Sunday on two hours if I can be. That might upset your employer and you might suffer a little persecution for it. If you're married to somebody that's not a believer and you are, guess what? Your marriage is going to suffer for it. You see, the truth is, church, we have got so involved in a PC, politically correct culture, we don't want to judge anybody, we don't want to offend anybody, we are scared to death to stand up, we are scared to death to speak out, and Lord knows we are scared to death to stand out. And I'm telling you, church, it's time for that to stop. If you love Jesus, it's time to act like you love Jesus. When Peter was writing this, he knew that the people he was telling this to he knew that when he wrote this letter for Christians in his day to stand up and to be holy, it would not only cost them friendships, it would cost them their very lives. He knew whenever he told them to live holy, whenever he told them to live like this, not only would it mean their possible death, it could mean their whole family being thrown out to the lines in Nero's circus. It could mean people he loved very much be covered in oil and lit up in, in a garden and lit on fire. But Peter says it's worth it anyway. And he goes on, and I'm going to tell you, just like Peter told these believers in verse 13, and who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Who is it? I could tell you this right now. If it's somebody that's going to harm your relationship with Jesus, well, then it's worth cutting the relationship off. Who is it? I don't care if it's the governor. I don't care if it's the president. I don't even care if it's, if, if it's your child or your mother or your father. We've got to go with Jesus and what he says first. And doing that means suffering. Peter, knowing that, says in verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you're blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Don't be afraid of it. Listen, it's worth it. It is so worth it to follow Christ. It is a wonderful thing. I would love to stand before my maker one day and Jesus say, Kevin, thank you for suffering for me like I suffered for you. And then we get to the heart of the verse this morning. You do all these things. You're willing to be suffered. You're willing to pers be persecuted for Jesus. You're willing to die for Jesus. Then people are going to ask the question, why are you crazy? This is 2021. We've moved on for some of this stuff. Now, now things are different. We, things are different. And you live like somebody back in the Old Testament. So he says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You answer the question. It may point somebody to Jesus. They may think you're even foolish than before. Verse 16, it says, Having a good conscience, not if they defame you, but when they defame you. 
as evildoers, those who reviled your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. It's just the most amazing thing to me that people would view Christians as a hate group today. But isn't that exactly what they do? They, they view us as somebody who supports traditional marriage, somebody who supports a mother making the loving decision to, to have her child. That's a hate group. But they call us evildoers. We give more to, to missions. We give more to, to, to the Baptist children's home. We do more for unwed mothers than anybody else. We do more for disaster relief than anybody else. Yet they defame us as evildoers. And it will always be the case. But we have a good conscience. And we know the reason for our hope. And it says that those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. They should be ashamed for the things they say against Jesus and His church. Now look in verse 17. Leave here today knowing this. Don't you ever forget this, church. For it is better. It's better if it is the will of good to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Man, every time that somebody asks you the question, every time somebody defames your faith, every time that you're made fun of, every time that somebody thinks you're crazy for turning down that drink or that drug, every time that, that you say, me and my house are going to follow the Lord, and every time you're persecuted, maybe you'll even lose your job for a religious reason. Let me tell you, it's better to suffer if it's the will of God than for doing evil. That's what we're called to do. If we live like this church, people will ask the question. And not only will, be, will we be going, we will be growing. Because people want that blessed hope. As I get to the end of this this morning, let me just address this. What is the answer? What is the answer? We're to be ready to give an answer. We're to be ready to give a defense. Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you. If you get asked that reason, oh, and I hope you get asked that reason. I hope that somebody will ask you the reason for the hope that is within you. Just like those 12 huge memorial stones, Joshua knew, hey, they're going to ask you about these. And it's to point back to this event. It's to point back to this miracle when, when God parted the Jordan River that you may know that our Lord God is the God of all the nations. Well, listen, when people ask that question of you, it should point back to an event. The wrong answer. What's the reason for the hope within you? What's the reason why you're such a holy roller? What's the reason you go to church? Listen, I, I love the Holy Bible. And I love the story in it. And I believe it is inspired. And I believe it is inerrant. But you know what? That's not the reason for the hope that is within me. That's not the event that changed my life. I love the Sunday school teachers. I love the pastors I had growing up. But that's not the reason for the hope that is within me. I love my parents. They've made every effort to teach me right from wrong. But that's not the reason for the hope that is within me. When somebody asks the reason for the hope that is within me, when the hope that is within you, then your mind should immediately go back to the event where God made a way for you. Your mind shouldn't go back to a baptism. Your mind shouldn't go back to joining a church. Your mind should go back to an event where you were broken as a sinner, where you asked for forgiveness of your sins and you accepted Jesus as your Savior. 
You don't have to know the day. You don't have to know the year. Oh, but there should be an event that's sketched in your memory so powerful that, it, that you'll never forget it. I can tell you in my life, I remember Paul Perry was the preacher. I remember it was a revival. I remember it was Thursday night. And I knew, I knew that I knew that I knew if I wanted any prayer of going to heaven, I needed to get on my, my hands and my knees that night and do it. And bam, that was the night. That was the night that God made a way for me. That's the reason for the hope that is within me. Church, if you don't have that event, if you don't have an event like that in your past, then you don't have the hope. That's the reason for the hope that is in you. Do you have an event like that to point back to? You don't have to be in a church. You don't have to be in a Baptist church. It could be at home, at your bedside. It could be on a deer stand. But there should be an event that you could point back to. Oh, church, if you don't have an event like that in your life, I pray that today would be the day that God parts the Jordan for you. Now, if you have an event like that in your life, if you can look back and you can say that God did a miracle in your life like God did for the Israelites, let me just ask you this morning, Are you living a life that the world would call into question? I mean, really think about that this morning. If somebody was 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 to watch your life for a week, say, they drove with you to work, they went to school with you, they went to work with you, they went home with you, they listened to what you listened to on the radio. They watched what you watched on Netflix or on TV. They, they saw what you saw on the internet. Everywhere you went, they went with you. Would the world see a difference at all? Would the world see a difference at all? You see, in this world we live in today, this, this, this world that is so immoral, this world is so bipolar opposite of God's kingdom. You shouldn't have to look very hard in the life of a believer to see a difference. I just, I'll close this way by this simple statement. The world will never ask why you're different if they don't see a difference. Are you living a life that is different? Are you living a life that is set apart? Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed the message. I hope you understood it. I hope you'll resolve to live a life that is so out of place, people will ask you why. Have a great week.